The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the science and surprising sophistication of the instincts we serve in the pursuit of pleasure. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Zoe Cormier is an author, journalist, science writer, and events producer with a background in biology. Her work has been featured in The Times, Wired, Nature, New Scientist, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, and many other publications. She has been shortlisted twice for the Canadian National Magazine Award. Originally from Toronto, Zoe now lives in London. She is also the author of the new book, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, The Science of Hedonism and the Hedonism of Science. Zoe, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks very much for having me. So uh, the science of hedonism is a subtitle, is the subtitle of this book, and that's a little bit provocative. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, uh, I think it's provocative because I think some people might not associate pleasure with science. I think a lot of people still associate science with tests and school and demoralizing multiple choice exams and the the rigmarole of having to do laboratory tests and not necessarily seeing the point. Um, and it's often a subject that isn't taught with the same vivacity or the same inherent love of learning, the same spirit uh, that you might get in the arts. Not that there aren't unbelievable science teachers out there, because I was lucky enough to have absolutely wonderful teachers who really taught me that learning should be fun. And science is just a tool we use to understand how amazing the universe is. Um, and then I suppose the other way that we could take this answer in terms of the science of hedonism and the hedonism of science uh, is that uh, my book explores why sex, drugs, and music, why inherently pleasurable activities are not primitive or basic, but are actually very sophisticated and very important facets of the human condition. It's really interesting. Did you was there a specific inspiration for this theme? I guess the first thing, I mean, going down to you know the absolute root of it all would be um, the fact that I grew up in the music industry. My dad's a promoter, and he lives in Toronto, and I grew up surrounded by heavy metal and reggae and noise, and uh, I spent a number of years working at a nightclub in Toronto. Um, so while I was a student at U of T, I studied biology by day, and then in the evenings I would be bartending at gigs with, you know, local punk acts and, you know, big touring main stage acts and whatnot. Um, and I had a very good education in the importance of music, and uh, I spent many years studying music and playing the piano and the clarinet. Um, so from a very young age, I developed a deep appreciation for why it's a very important part of what it means to be human. Uh, and then later on in my later life, uh, I guess in my late 20s, I, I thought to myself, well, what happens when you put science and music together? What has science taught us about why music is important? Um, and when I started researching the subject, I just couldn't put it down. I thought it was one of the most beautiful areas of knowledge that I'd ever come across. Um, and then branching out from that, my publisher said, well, why don't we write a book about sex, drugs, and music? And no one's ever done a science book that looks at all three together in that way. So it just sort of spitballed from there. You mentioned about how uh, music tells us something about what it means to be human. And actually, that is a theme throughout your book for all three of these sections. Is there something about it that can tell us what it is to be human? Yeah. Um, so that's a question that has puzzled philosophers and scientists and novelists, you know, anybody who ponders the human condition 
has been forced to consider the question, what does it mean to be human? What is it that demarcates us from animals? The short answer is that there is no one single thing. You know, it really is the whole package. But people have pondered a number of different capacities, whether it be the ability to add numbers together, to think about the past, present, and future, um, the capacity for self-consciousness, um, and usually people focus on what we consider to be our higher cognitive capacities, those things I just mentioned, um, language, for example, writing, um, as what demarcates us from animals, um, whereas having sex and taking chemicals and making noise tend to be relegated to the bin of animalistic pursuits. They tend to be thought of as primitive or basic. Um, but what's interesting is that Yes, we do share these traits with animals. All other animals do reproduce and consume mind-altering substances and make noise. But we have taken all three activities to the next level. And we have some spectacular idiosyncrasies in terms of our anatomy, in terms of our behavior, that with respect to all three of these activities are biologically unrivaled. And they're fascinating and they're integral to who we are. We wouldn't be human if it wasn't for the fact that we like to have sex, take drugs, and make noise in a spectacular way. Okay, I am going to uh, dive right into the sex because sex is fun. Um, and <laughs> I think when we think of pioneering science and sex research, um, Alfred Kinsey's name almost inevitably always comes up um, as he comes up in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his research? Sure. Um, Kinsey was a true humanitarian and a very interesting and a very important individual. Um, he started off as a lepidopterist. Uh, he studied insects and he studied the diversity of shapes and sizes, um, the enormous spectrum of species and shapes that you get in insects and in butterflies, I believe, in particular. Um, and he uniquely, and um, this was quite revolutionary at the time, studied the human species in the same way. Whereas in the past, a lot of people had thought, not all scientists, but most had thought of the human species as coming essentially in a binary set, male or female, and that there's an archetypal male and an archetypal female way to be. And Kinsey didn't see us that way. He saw humans as existing on a spectrum. So he believed it, it was called the Kinsey scale and that it ranged from uh, zero to nine being exclusively heterosexual to exclusively homosexual, but that most people lay somewhere in between. And this was actually a very revolutionary idea at the time, but I think today we might see it as perhaps much more acceptable to imagine that we don't come in black or white, but there are many shades of gray in the middle. Um, and he also revolutionized the study of sex by approaching it in the same way that he approached the study of insects, was to gather a lot of data. He wanted to interview ultimately 100,000 Americans on all aspects of their sexual behavior um, and their personality and their preferences. I think he um, interviewed in the end about 17,000, which was still an enormous number at the time. Sex research historically has been really interesting because it always is sort of accompanied by this shock or this concern that perhaps we ought not to talk about these sort of things or study these sort of things. Um, and so Kinsey seems to be one of the first people who really sat down and tried to look at human sexuality as a science. Mm -hmm. he, he did. There were a few interesting uh, Dutch scientists earlier in the century, but uh, Kinsey did remark, in fact, when he looked at 
overall, what scientists and psychiatrists and whatnot thought about sex, he said essentially, quote, there isn't much science here, meaning that a lot of the ideas that people took as accepted truth were based on opinion and not on fact or not on data. Why did it take us so long to look at human sexuality as a science? It's a very good question. Um, I think that one reason is that it is a touchy subject, and it's a subject that is highly sensitive and politically charged, you know, regardless of cultural context or where you are in the world. Very weird ideas and very sad ideas and very misogynistic and homophobic and misanthropic ideas have cropped up in cultures across the earth. Not that there also haven't been wonderful, celebratory, vivacious ideas as well, but sex is something that can cause us great joy, but can also cause us great pain. And there are a few realms, I think, of human behavior that have been subject to so much bias and um, judgmental and nasty pronouncements on the nature of the human species and what is right or wrong or natural or unnatural. why is it that scientists took so long to turn their attention towards it? Well, I guess the same, I mean, the same reason why it's been a, a facet of human behavior that religious authorities often try to stamp out, too, because it's something that is wild and hard to control, and it speaks to uh, the unbridled activities that we are still beholden to that we might like to think that we are not. Back in Kinsey's time, would it have been difficult to get funding for the type of research he was working on? Um, It was, actually. Certainly way more difficult than today, and he certainly made a lot of waves and a lot of controversy. An enormous amount has changed over the past 70 years. It's interesting, because while Kinsey sort of, in our brains, pioneered uh, sex science in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, um, if you go farther back, Leonardo da Vinci studied the penis, and we owe some of our understanding (laughs) of how it works originally to him, which I did not know. Yeah, yeah, he was the very first person to correctly identify the corpus spongiosum and the corpus cavernosa. These are three chambers in the penis that swell with blood, when men have an erection prior to this point, people thought that erections were caused by air. Um, and it's interesting that Leonardo da Vinci was the one who identified this because he is reported to have described the act of sex as, quote, disgusting. Once again, we have that tension between the social views of science and a scientific worldview. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I probably shouldn't be surprised that da Vinci studied the penis. Is there anything he did not study? <laughs> I'm not an expert on da Vinci, but I would be I would be inclined to think there probably wasn't very much he didn't study. I feel like we should be shocked if there is something. <laughs> You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking about some of our most base desires with journalist Zoe Cormier, author of the new book, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, The Science of Hedonism and the Hedonism of Science. Okay, let's uh, talk a little bit about drugs. I actually found this to be one of the, probably of the three, the most fascinating uh, chapter of the book. While the, all three of them are really interesting, this one, mm-hmm. I don't know, it, it pulled me and there was a lot in here I didn't know. So you actually start this section by asking what I think is a very important question that we probably don't ask often enough, which is what is a drug? That is an excellent question. My favorite definition is somebody else's high. <laughs> uh, and certainly there's one, if there's one thing I learned in my study of the science of drugs and also the social aspects of drugs, um, pretty much everybody has their poison and 
they like to judge other people's boys. And, you know, people who like fatty, sugary food can denigrate the activities of people who like to drink, who might denigrate people who smoke, who might denigrate people who do psychedelics. It's very difficult to find somebody who doesn't have some particular substance that they really crave. And everybody likes to judge other people's fun. So what definition of a drug did you decide to use for this book? Um, I didn't go with one particular definition. I just threw a few out there. One is, of course, somebody else's high. Uh, Another drug is a psychoactive substance that is illegal. However, tea, uh, nicotine, coffee, alcohol, certainly during prohibition, all those chemicals were made illegal in different parts of the world at various times. Uh, Did you know that having a cigarette would earn you a slit nose in 17th century Russia? (laughs) But, uh, I mean, I think the most enticing definition for most drugs, not all, because a lot of drugs now are born in laboratories, but if you were a plant, you would think of a drug as something that you use to make animals do what you want. Okay, so keeping that definition in mind, how Mm -hmm. do drugs kind of in general work? How do they do what they do to us? So drugs work by mimicking neurotransmitters. So what they are are chemicals that masquerade as chemicals that are naturally found in the human body. So a neurotransmitter is essentially the chemical messengers of the mind. These are the molecules that your cells use to talk to each other to send messages through the nervous system. And you're familiar with many of these things, such as serotonin, which is a chemical that's associated with um, a pleasant feeling and pleasure. Uh, Dopamine, which tends to be stimulated by things like sex and by cocaine, um, so highly pleasurable. Uh, Endorphins. So what drugs do is they mimic the chemicals that are already in the human body, and they do this by attaching more strongly to the receptors that are built for those chemicals than our own natural chemicals do. So let's take, for example, serotonin. There are little keyholes in the mind that are built to accept serotonin as our brain cells talk to each other. LSD, acid, and psilocybin, both of these chemicals mimic serotonin, and they mimic serotonin by invading the keyhole that is built for serotonin, and they stick to it more strongly than serotonin does itself. It's essentially botanical bird blurry. It's an act of break and entry. So from your book, it seems like we figured out quite a lot about how our brain works by trying to figure out how drugs do what they do. Um, at least early on, it seems like drugs and neuroscience kind of went hand in hand. Yeah, this is one of my favorite aspects of the neuroscience of drugs and something that I only I didn't know this until I was researching my book. And it's certainly not something that was ever revealed to me when I was in my undergraduate days. But we have drugs to thank for the discovery of a lot of these molecules. So the reason is this. In the um, 19th century, as scientists were a, um, uncovering the molecular mechanics of a lot of drugs, you know, Europe was awash in drugs during the Victorian age, we must remember. We think of the Victorians as being uptight. But in fact, the continent was full of opium and tea and coffee and marijuana. Nitrous oxide was popular for a time as well. Um, and this posed a scientific puzzle. How could a chemical made in the coffee plant or in the poppy plant or in a mushroom, how could chemicals made by other living things work inside the human body? Hmm, how does that work? And so scientists mapped the molecules that were in drugs 
And then they found the receptors that those drugs attached to, which then led them to discover the body's own inborn chemicals. So the very first time this happened, it was with nicotine. We have tobacco to thank for the very first discovery of a neurotransmitter. So nicotine was isolated and identified in 1843, and then its chemical structure was revealed in 1893. But how it worked in the body wasn't known. In 1905, Cambridge professor John Langley proposed that animal tissues must contain a substance that combines with nicotine and receives the stimulus and transmits it. He called this hypothetical keyhole a receptive substance. Interestingly, it wasn't until the 1970s when French scientists combined snake toxins with the reactive tissues of the electric eel that they discovered the receptor for nicotine, and they called it the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. We named our own body part after the drug. Uh, And it turns out that nicotine mimics a chemical which is called acetylcholine, which our bodies use to process energy and to send messages around the system. Again, we named the body part after the drug. Um, And this pattern continues. We identified the cannabinoids in THC before we identified the endocannabinoids, which are the chemicals that naturally are found in the human body. Um, Again, we named a body part after a drug. Uh, My favorite example is that morphine was identified in 1805, and it wasn't until 1973 that the receptor for opium was identified, and then scientists identified the endorphins that it mimics. Amazing. It's really interesting. And uh, you mentioned as well the Victorian era and how we think of them as really proper and uptight. But there was a lot of drugs going on in the Victorian era. And uh, one of my (laughs) favorites was uh, the nitrous oxide that was going around. That's one of my favorite stories, too. Um, Where would you like to start? Let's talk, maybe let's start with how, how, who created nitrous oxide? Sure. Well, nitrous oxide is a chemical, a very simple chemical that is found naturally in the atmosphere. It's made of just nitrogen and oxygen. It's a very simple compound and it exists in the air around us all the time. It wasn't until the 1700s that scientists figured out how to isolate it, which means by produce a concentrated um, form of the gas. So this was first done by Joseph Priestley in 1772. Uh, He actually called it phlogisticated nitrous air. Um, This was just outside of Bristol. This was near Bath in southern England. And he was working at an institute that was tasked with investigating gases for any interesting medicinal properties that they might have. And a young scientist from Cornwall named Humphrey Davy was tasked with studying a variety of these different gases. And um, he set about his task with a lot of enthusiasm, doing really funky experiments, exploring the different properties of the gases. And uh, whenever he had a gas that he was working with that he thought might be interesting, he would give it to himself. He wouldn't give it to a lab animal, and he wouldn't give it to a human subject. He would do it on himself first. And the name for that is chivalry. I think it's particularly chivalrous because he almost died a couple of times. One time he inhaled a near lethal amount of carbon monoxide without realizing what it was going to do. But he continued in this manner of self-dosing. Uh, I lament that the term gentleman scientist is no longer something that is often implied. Um, so Humphrey Davy then came upon nitrous oxide. And 
he found it to be particularly interesting. This is his records in his diary. A highly pleasurable thrilling, particularly in the chest and extremities. Objects around me became dazzling and my hearing more acute. This gas raised my pulse upwards of 20 strokes, made me dance about the laboratory as a madman, and has kept my spirits in the glow ever since. By degrees, as the pleasurable sensations increased, I lost all connection with external things. Trains of vivid, visible images rapidly passed through my mind and were connected with words in such a manner as to produce perceptions perfectly novel. I theorized that I had made discoveries. When I was awakened from this semi-delirious trance, indignation and pride were my first feelings. And with the most intense belief and prophetic manner, I exclaimed, Nothing exists but thoughts. The universe is composed of impressions, ideas, pleasures, and pains. So So Humphrey Avey (laughs) thought that this gas was fantastic, and he spent many late nights in the laboratory playing with the gas, consuming enormous amounts of it. He had silk balloons, he had metal mouthpieces that he built. Any kid at a music festival who does balloons today would be put to shame by the gear that this man devised, Um, including a box that was a bit like a sedan chair, and he would get inside the box and get his assistants to fill it full of gas so he could inhale as much as possible. Um, On one occasion, he inhaled about 80 quarts. Um, And like kids today who stay up late with their bongs, uh, he would invite over the cool cats, his friends, to play with the chemical too, uh, including some very famous people of the day. So Robert Southey, the poet, said, I am sure the air in heaven must be this wonder-working gas of delights. Samuel Taylor Coleridge an unmingled pleasure. And anonymous, I felt like the sound of a harp. Some of the stories of scientists creating and or experimenting with various new drugs of their day are pretty great. Um, other than the nitrous oxide stories, do you have a favorite? Uh, yes, for certain. Uh, my favorite would be the creation of LSD by Albert Hoffman. Um, Albert Hoffman who experienced the world's first acid trip. Most people are somewhat familiar with the story if they're fans of the drug, which is that Albert Hoffman was working for Sandoz Chemicals in Switzerland, um, and he was uh, he made acid by accident. He made LSD by accident, and he got a little bit of the crystal on his fingers. I mean, when I say by accident, I mean he was not trying to make a narcotic. He was trying to do something else, but he accidentally made this narcotic got some on his fingers, and as he rode home on bicycle, the world started to swirl and melt a bit. What I love about Albert Hoffman is that he wasn't trying to create a drug to get high. He was trying to create drugs to help pregnant women. He was working for Sandoz Chemicals, and he spent 10 years before he made LSD playing with chemicals made from the chitin of crustaceans and from various types of fungi to try and produce drugs that would prevent death of women by postpartum hemorrhaging. Um, And the reason that he was led to LSD is because he was working with something called ergot fungus. So ergot fungus is a black fungus called clavis purpusea that infests rye. And throughout European history, fields of rye have become infested with this parasitic fungus, and people who've eaten it have become intensely poisoned. So they do experience the hallucinations and delusions that uh, hallucinogens can create. Uh, But they also suffer terrible fevers, 
gangrene. There were reported instances of peasants who had all four limbs drop off. Um, one of the largest outbreaks affected about 10,000 people in Accutane. Uh, the last time an outbreak of um, ergot poisoning happened was in Russia in 1926, in fact. So this chemical, the chemicals made in the fungus, are very poisonous and very unpleasant and very powerful. But in tiny doses, midwives had long known that they could use it as an abortive and also as a means to induce labor in difficult and painful circumstances because uh, it has what are called uterotonic properties, which means that it induces contractions in the uterus. Um, and so Hoffman was investigating this chemical to find if, uh, if there were ways to create synthetic analogs of what were found in the fungus to then produce something synthetic and safe that wouldn't have the horrible gangrenous fevery properties but could be used to help women. And in fact, he actually made a drug that's called methardine, and this is still one of the most widely used drugs in obstetrics. So speaking of LSD, um, there was a lot of interest in LSD throughout different biological fields, including neurology and yeah. psychotherapy researchers. Yeah. What about LSD made it so popular in these research fields? Um, this is an excellent question, and it actually relates to a wonderfully Canadian chapter in the history of drugs. Um, so when Hoffman first created LSD, um, he basically got a little bit on his fingers, had a little bit of a trip, and then he decided that he was going to self-dose with a large amount of it um, to see what would happen. And when he did that, he had a terrible time, in fact. He went home. It was confusing. It, he felt like he was insane. He had no idea if he'd ever come down, essentially. Um, it was the next day that he felt was a beautiful experience and the whole world shimmered with meaning and light and glory. Um, but he found the first experience so terrifying and so powerful, he never imagined anyone would take acid for fun, which is kind of adorable. You know, that speaks to his uh, nerdiness as a Swissman. Um, but uh, what he thought was that it could be what the microscope was for biology and what the telescope was for astronomy. He thought that LSD could be a tool to probe the mind. Uh, and in particular, he and a lot of psychiatrists thought that by taking LSD themselves, they could experience what it is like to be a schizophrenic or somebody suffering from some form of mental delusion, that psychiatrists could spend a day in the hinterlands of the mind, but then come back to reality with an increased capacity to empathize with and understand their patients, which is actually quite noble and actually quite beautiful. Um, and in particular, there was a British psychiatrist named Humphrey Osmond. Um, he is also the same person who gave LSD to Aldous Huxley, quite famously, who wrote The Doors of Perception. And Humphrey Osmond um, came to Canada. He came to Saskatchewan, and he was working at a psychiatric institute there um, with, alongside some other psychiatrists who, first of all, took lots of LSD themselves and very rigorous tests and made very detailed journal accounts and wrote things down and were trying to understand the biology and the experience of madness. Um, but then in terms of practical application, they thought that LSD would be a wonderful tool to treat alcoholism. The prairies uh, were suffering from very high rates of the, well, I mean, as most of North America in rural areas has done perpetually, um, you know, suffered from fairly commonplace rates of alcoholism. And that's a very difficult condition to treat, in fact. It's a very difficult, just like smoking, it's a very easy drug to get back into because it's around us all the time and it's so socially acceptable. Um, 
And so at first, Humphrey Osmond thought that he could use LSD to create the experience of delirium tremens, which is um, very severe withdrawal symptoms that alcoholics get several days after they quit drinking. If they are a very severe alcoholic, they can suffer sweats and shakes and hallucinations and nausea. And in very extreme cases, people can even die from it. And it's usually after an experience of such quaking fear that a lot of drinkers give it up because nothing would scare you straight more, right? So he thought that he could induce that experience in alcoholics and scare them straight. But in fact, in the opposite happened. He found that a lot of alcoholics who were given an LSD session basically gained an enhanced appreciation for the meaning of life and how wonderful it is to exist and you know, the beauty of the world around them, as, you know, as maybe hippy-dippy as that sounds, that is how a lot of the alcoholics he was treating in Saskatchewan quit. They found that about half of the alcoholics in their program were able to quit through this method. Um, and it did spread throughout North America. In fact, Cary Grant um, quit drinking because of LSD. And so did most famously, or perhaps not most famously, but most notably, Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, a Christian organization. He says so in his memoirs that he tried LSD therapy and it did give him an an enhanced appreciation for the world and how beautiful it is, you know, for him coming from a religious perspective. Um, And he said, I consider LSD to be a danger to almost no one. Those are significant words coming from somebody who was an alcoholic and also founded Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, it is. Um, So no one ever thought that it was going to become a fun club drug. People at the time thought it was going to be something that people who needed some very profound, you know, psychiatric treatment or profound therapeutic treatment could use in a beneficial way. Well, there are, we always sort of hear some rumblings about other places where psychedelics could be therapeutic. Uh, I've heard that it may have applications in treating PTSD. Yes, in fact, this is going on right now in Vancouver. Um, they're studying the potential to use um, not LSD, but MDMA or ecstasy. They're studying the potential to use this drug to help people who are suffering from shakes and fear and flashbacks and all of the horrible symptoms that accompany post-traumatic stress disorder. So people who've suffered from sexual abuse or who've gone to war, um, any kind of severe trauma. And they found that people who undergo MDMA therapy, there was an American study in 2010 that a, about 82% of people who have intractable PTSD, which means that they haven't responded to other antidepressants or other forms of therapy, they found that about 82% of those intractable cases responded well to MDMA psychotherapy. Uh, compared to 25% given just psychotherapy. And it's crucial to note that this isn't a manner of just being given a pill and left to sit in a room. This involves a long period of getting to know your therapist and working through the conventional modes of psychotherapy and then through a few concentrated sessions with MDMA, helping people to talk about difficult circumstances that prior to that point they had found extremely challenging to discuss. Um, and it's remarkable that they are now doing this study in Vancouver because this is the first time in 40 years that a study using a psychedelic has been approved in Canada. Um, there is a group called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies based in California, and they have a branch in Canada. It's led up by a guy named Mark Hayden. And it's wonderful that they have achieved this because the American branch, they've gotten a lot of studies investigating psychedelics and human health approved for a number of years now. So 
psilocybin to help people with end-of-life anxiety in cases of terminal cancer, um, LSD and alcoholism, for example. Um, and they've done many studies with MDMA and PTSD. And finally, the Canadian group has managed to get Health Canada to approve this. And it's taken a very long time, and I salute them in their work. It seems like in the last few years, it's becoming a little bit easier for researchers to get some of these drugs through to test or research or get things trialed um, in ways that haven't been before. So what's changed about our view of some of these drugs that allow us to now research them more openly? That's an excellent question. Um, some people are calling it the psychedelic renaissance. Um, so as I mentioned, LSD and alcoholism, psilocybin and anxiety and cancer, uh, psilocybin and helping people quit smoking, um, MDMA and PTSD, you know, even LSD and cluster headaches, that's a fascinating case. Um, people who suffer from cluster headaches, which are known to be intensely painful, some people who have those symptoms started swapping stories in online forums about how using acid now and then actually was really helpful. And they lobbied the American government to perform real clinical studies to investigate this, and they won. Uh, it's an instance of what's called crowd-sourced science. Um, and so what has caused this perhaps gentle but long overdue sea change in investigating the potential of drugs to help with human health? Um, I think a couple of things have happened. One is that there has been a decent time lag between the hysteria of the 1970s and um, people seeing what quote-unquote acid casualties, seeing lots of reports in the media that drugs can make you crazy. There's been a sort of good breathing gap between then and now, and I think um, seeing that a lot of the people who did drugs back in those days did not age into decrepit and deformed individuals that they actually carried on perfectly healthy, normal lives. Um, I think a lot of that hysteria has died down. I think that also people are increasingly coming to understand that all drugs are double-edged swords. So I'm not for a moment suggesting that psilocybin or LSD or any of those drugs are never dangerous. But all drugs have good sides and bad sides, whether you're talking about nicotine or caffeine or alcohol or, I mean, morphine, for example. We've never come up with a more powerful painkiller. All drugs have a time and a place when used in the right way on the right individual. Um, and I guess the last thing that's happened that's been a huge driving force behind all of this is the um, decriminalization of marijuana, which is unbelievably long overdue. And I think that the public has come to see that if such a useful painkiller, which can be so useful for people with cancer and multiple sclerosis and whatnot, if that was kept under lock and key by the powers that be for an inordinate amount of time, surely now we should start to question other laws prohibiting other substances too. You're tuned in to Science for the People, and with me is science writer Zoe Cormier. Today we're talking about the more hedonistic side of science as we explore Zoe's new book, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, The Science of Hedonism and the Hedonism of Science. We'll be right back with more Science for the People right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. This week, we're looking at the science of our most basic pleasures with Zoe Cormier 
author of Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, The Science of Hedonism and the Hedonism of Science. Okay, so let's talk about music for a minute. That's why, my favorite. Uh, why include this in your three-part theme for this book? Oh, God. that's um, Why not? I mean, first of all, the phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll has stuck in our collective consciousness for a reason. We do think of the three things going together. Um, for me personally, it's the most fascinating and the most beautiful of all three subjects, um, and it is the one thing that you could say is the most uniquely human. Um, on a personal level, we'd start with music because it's the one that's closest to my heart and that I think is the most interesting. Um, and I guess from a broader perspective, music is, I think, evolution's greatest hit. <laughs> I love that. So... <laughs> Like your search for a definition of drug, you also try to define the term music. Um, I think that one was even more difficult. Yeah, um, and you'd be amazed at how many people have tried. Um, Confucius said, it produces a kind of pleasure that man cannot do without. Um, that's great. Uh, but that's, you know, I guess it's halfway there. There are lots of other pleasures that we frankly can't live without. Um, uh, one great definition is organized sound. But an alarm clock is also a form of organized sound, and that's not music. Um, beautiful math is another definition. And yes, music is mathematical, um, and many forms of maths are beautiful, though, but not musical. The best definition is that it is an exquisite illusion. It's an illusion. It's something that exists inside your skull, inside your mind, and only in your mind. It does not exist in the objective world around you. It is a subjective reality that exists inside your brain, made by your brain for you. I love that definition. And I think it's really true to the way each of us experiences music in our own way. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it also illustrates quite beautifully the fact that you experience the world around you through your brain. You're, you don't actually see everything around you and hear everything around you as a complete one-to-one accurate representation of the particles of the universe that buzz around you. Your brain basically extracts information from all of the patterns around it and all of the information around it and tries to come up with a cohesive view of reality for you. It's basically a pattern-making machine. So you can use various optical illusions and auditory illusions that will illustrate for you and show you the ways that your brain is imposing patterns on the world. Um, and music is the ultimate pattern. So how, one of the questions you look at in your book is how long we as humans have been creating music. Mm. Did you find an answer for that in your search? There isn't really any answer. Um, it's pretty impossible to say. Um, there are, for example, instruments that have been recovered from archaeological sites. Um, one's called the Babje flute, and it was found in Slovenia, and it was made from the femur of a bear, and it's 40,000 years old. And that's a flute. That's a flute. And they've done reconstructions of it, and it appears to play the do re mi fa scale when it has air blown through it in the correct way. And that's a very sophisticated instrument. So if we were making flutes 40,000 years ago, how much longer were we clapping and singing and just making various kinds of noise? Um, They've also done some fascinating studies where they've looked at the acoustics inside of caves, um, caves where you find, you know, ochre art that Neolithic people have painted. And they find that a lot of the paintings are in the position in the cave that has the best acoustics. Um, there's a whole field devoted to this. It's called archaeoacoustics. 
I'd always thought of music as being universal. Everybody can appreciate and enjoy music. They may not appreciate and enjoy the music I like, uh, <laughs> but I like to think that everybody has their own favorites. Um, mm-hmm. But in your book, you talk about people who don't hear music the same way the rest of us do. Uh, they don't hear the patterns or understand what music is. And this is fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about Amusia? Yes, it's endlessly fascinating. Um, so you are correct in thinking that music is something that is universal. It is actually one of the very few things that are found in all human cultures. Not hum- every human culture has the number zero. Agriculture, writing, every human culture makes music in some way, shape, or form. But not everybody can hear it. It appears that about 4% of the human population, which is actually quite a large number, um, have a characteristic that's called amusia, which means no music. So it appears to have come in at least a dozen forms. Um, and there is a team at McGill in Montreal, um, led up by a Canadian neuroscientist named Isabelle Perretz. And she's identified a number of different forms of amusia, people who don't perceive sound in the same way that other people do. Now, some people who have amusia perceive just noise. Music is unpleasant and confusing, and they can't bear it. And what's interesting is that they tend to be perfectly intelligent and normal in every other regard. They tend to be perfectly fluent and fine with language and mathematics, but their brains just find music confusing. But there are other people who have amusia who can appreciate some aspects of music, but not others. So, for example, some people can appreciate um, differences in tone and frequency, but not differences in rhythm. Um, And then there's other people who can appreciate um, rhythm, but not uh, differences in tone. Uh, These people are said to have dystymbria. Um, And the reason for this is that in order to appreciate music, you need pretty much every part of your brain working in concert with every other bit. So if one member of the cast of characters isn't playing ball, it's not going to create the same illusion and the same experience that the rest of us have. It's really, and and this isn't just you're tone deaf or you can't hmm. keep a beat. It's it's sort of a step above that. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's even far more than being colorblind for sound. It's something much more profound than that. Um, and I can't tell you what music sounds like to someone who has amusia. I mean, in the same way, I can't tell you what it, you know, what the color blue looks like. You know, it's something you have to perceive for yourself. But um, you can go, uh, if you check out the um, McGill team, they have an online test you can take to see if you have amusia. Uh, and quite frequently, people live for a very long time without knowing that they have it because they will often know other people who are also amusic because it tends to be genetic and run in families. Interesting. Very it, Especially interesting when also in your book you talk about the fact that the people who we think wouldn't enjoy music at all or wouldn't um, have any need for music, uh, some deaf populations actually in the right situations can quite enjoy good music. Absolutely. In fact, one of my best friends is a guy named Jacob, and he is fully 100% deaf. He is what's called profoundly deaf. He can't hear a thing, but he adores music. He's actually a very accomplished musician. Uh, He plays the drums and a number of instruments uh, because his parents, who can hear, gave him music lessons as a child, and they thought that would be a great way to help him assimilate into the hearing world and not to feel isolated. Um, You can also check out a wonderful percussionist, a Scottish woman named Evelyn Glenny, um, who is a very accomplished uh, classical percussionist who plays the xylophone and things like that. Um, Deaf people who like music, they feel the vibrations. They feel the tactile quality of music. They might not have it inside their heads the way that we do, but they feel it through their bodies. 
So uh, just before uh, we finish up, why is music such a big part of being human? It, it seems like every culture does it, and we've been doing it for a really long time. But why? What purpose does it serve? That's an incredibly good question, um, and that's a, a difficult one to answer. Some people think that the obvious answer is sex, that um, music is used to attract mates, that it's sexually attractive. Darwin certainly thought so. He thought that the males and females of the progenitors of mankind produced music as a means of charming members of the opposite sex. Um, and there have been some rather facile studies that have looked at rock stars and made uh, calculations on how many women they may have slept with, Jimi Hendrix and whatnot. That's, those studies are pretty spurious and a bit silly. Um, but what is true is that it certainly has a powerful effect in that way. But in fact, the more likely explanation is that music is used as a form of social bonding. Because in most human cultures, music is made by people as a group activity. It doesn't involve an audience and a maestro. It involves everyone in the community making music together as a group activity. And they use music when they farm. They use music when they hunt. They use music when they build things in particular. If we didn't have the capacity to make music in time with each other and to go heave, ho, heave, ho, we never would have built the pyramids or put up the Easter Island heads. We need the ability to keep time with other people in order to have concerted efforts, certainly in the days before mechanized engineering. Zoe, thank you so much for being here. It's a really fascinating book. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. If you want to learn more about Zoe Cormier or her new book, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, The Science of Hedonism and the Hedonism of Science, you can find links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. In just a minute, we'll indulge our passion for nerdy gift-giving with Simon Saval, co-founder of GeekRapt. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Simon Saval is an entrepreneur and investor living in Los Angeles. He is the founder and CEO of GeekRapt.com, the world's largest curated collection of unique science gifts. The organization's goals are to popularize science through products that stimulate the imagination and to raise money for national charities. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I gave people the sort of one-sentence summary, but can you tell us maybe in a little bit more robust way, what is GeekRapt? Absolutely, yeah. So um, as you said, we are essentially a gigantic collection of uh, science gifts and geek gifts. And the reason why we're doing that is because we think it's a fantastic way to popularize science. Um, And we do a lot of interdisciplinary stuff. We have physics gifts, math gifts, chemistry gifts, pretty much everything from every angle of science. Um, And try to get people excited about it and help people discover science who previously weren't interested in it. So now you guys also uh, don't just help us find nerdy things, but also Mm -hmm. help us find nerdy things and then give some of that profit to charities. That's cool. Yeah, it's great. And uh, really, so as I said, our main goal is to get more people excited about science. But uh, we also want to financially support science charities that make a real difference in the world. 
And uh, because of that, we donate 50% of all of our earnings to a number of great organizations. Uh, for example, the Planetary Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, um, or the Smithsonian Institution. So why did you, where did this come from? Where did this idea come from? I've always been fascinated myself about how the world works and I always love to learn new things. And uh, because of that, inevitably, probably like yourself, I became a science fan. Um, and so whenever friends have birthdays, I'm the one who gives them a science gift. But uh, I noticed that uh, these gifts were always hard to find and there was really no simple way to see all the different options out there that are available online. So based on that experience, uh, I decided to do something about it and create Geek Wrapped. Um, and the point of Geek Wrapped is really to make finding science gifts easy and fun for pretty much everybody. Um, and hopefully in the process, we can also help to popularize science even more. So I've uh, obviously had a little browse of Geek Wrapped, and I had to make sure my credit card was safely stowed because there's a lot of, of great stuff on there. Um, <laughs> can you maybe throw us out some examples of the kinds of stuff one could expect to find on Geek Wrapped? Yeah, we have a, a ton of different products from a ton of different fields. Um, one of the products we added recently is uh, it's really awesome. It's called Aroma Fork. So essentially what it is, it's a special fork that uses essential oils and a lot of chemistry to trick your mind into flavor illusions while you eat. And that's really a lot of fun to try with friends at a dinner party or just when you're eating at home. It's really weird. It has a bunch of essential oil capsules loaded into it. Um, and a, a lot of funny chemistry happens when you eat with it. Uh, so for example, if you eat a raspberry, it might uh, taste like coffee or chocolate suddenly and or all kinds of weird things can happen and your brain really tricks you into a fun experience. You should check it out. That is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> um, but we also have a lot of uh, other unique products like, for example, a 3D printed T-Rex shower head or cooking pants that were developed by rocket scientists at Oxford, um, which actually use real thermodynamics that are normally used for rockets and jet engines to cook your food faster. So it's a lot of variety from a lot of different brands. And these aren't just sort of straight up novelty things. There's like you say, pans, there are actual practical things here. Absolutely. We have, a, we definitely have novelty gifts that are kind of like a, a eyebrow razor at, at dinner parties or that you could bring to a birthday party. But um, at the same time, we also have a, a lot of things that you can just use in everyday life that make your life easier. Um, and that are just plain uh, fun if you're a science fan. What about uh, gifts for kids? These are what we've talked about so far. These appeal to adults, obviously. But uh, yeah. if you've got a a kid, maybe a younger kid or a teenager with a keen interest in science, do you guys offer stuff for that? Totally. We have things for all ages, for the whole family. Um, a, a lot of fun things. What's uh, really popular right now is a set of Hubble Space Lollipops. <laughs> which uh, feature the different planets, uh, different pictures of galaxies, and they're handmade in the U.S. Really fantastic product. Um, also a dinosaur fossil ice tray maker. So in your drink, in your iced tea, maybe you have a, a cool T-Rex bones floating around um, and a, a lot of other uh, products. A cool story about that is we, I just gave a son of a friend of mine a microscope that we sell on the, max, on the website that attaches to the camera of your smartphone. Um, and it was really amazing to see how his natural curiosity just exploded when he when he tried out that product. And he pretty much spent the entire rest of the day outside collecting all kinds of crazy samples and specimens to analyze. <laughs> so, yeah, I just absolutely love seeing those experiences. Um, and it makes all of us super happy and proud about what we're doing. 
So just to to clarify for people, you guys yourself aren't a store, a sort of uh, an individual store. You guys actually go out and find and feature sort of products in other places. Exactly. Yeah. So our goal is to really uh, be a one-stop resource for people looking for science gifts, um, and nothing like that actually existed online, surprisingly. Um, so what we do is we go out and we handpick all the products that we feature. Um, and just to make sure the, the quality is very high and they offer a great value and um, just put a smile on people's faces when they try it out. So are the product partners you work with actual partners? I'm assuming that uh, you work with them to so that you can get a cut of the sales and then you can send that 50% to the charities. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, essentially, when anybody buys a product over our site, we get a, a commission from the sale. And we use that to a support the science charities that you can find on our website, but also to pay our own bills um, and keep growing the service. But we go out and you know we we it's a huge variety of products on the site, so we really work with products from all areas, um, from leading brands to individuals that offer handmade products on Etsy. Um, and it's much more about having a complete um, offering than necessarily getting commissions. So a lot of the products we feature, we don't get commissions but we just feature them because they're awesome or, you know, uh, make us happy to have it on the side. So really, there's no lose here. You are, uh, you can find awesome science gifts or awesome science stuff that you can keep for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you can support uh, companies and individuals who make awesome stuff and you get to support science charities. I, It's one of those sounds too good to be true things. Exactly, it is. Yeah, and it's it's also free, you know. So you can feel free to just go to the site and check it out um, and browse. And like you said, hide your credit card maybe in, in advance because <laughs> it's very easy to get excited about it. There's a, a ton of cool stuff to discover. So how do you guys find and pick these products? We go through a um, pretty detailed process. We have a, a lot of different sources um, online that we evaluate for new products. Um, we constantly add products almost daily. Um, but in addition to that, uh, since the site has uh, grown considerably over the last few months, we get also a ton of submissions of people who bring out new products um, and want to introduce them on the site. And then they go through the same process of making sure they, they're great, you know, the, the quality is co- correct and uh, the value is okay. So as a curator of awesome geek products, what do you think makes a good science gift? I think really anything that sparks curiosity. And that's that's really different for each individual person, um, especially when it comes to children or adults. But, um, you know, anything that gets you out there thinking about uh, what makes up the world and how the world works and helps you to learn new things is a good science gift. So, you know, it really depends on the individual person, but it always makes me happy to to get an email from a parent who bought a science gift and then their child is really, really excited about it and uh, has shown some genuine curiosity about the, how the world works. That's just an amazing experience and that's really why we're doing this. And for people who maybe are trying to find that perfect science or a nerd gift for somebody else, mm-hmm. what are things that maybe you might want to stay away from? What's kind of like a science gift flop? A science gift flop? Um, there's a, a lot of stuff that points into the direction of pseudoscience, I would say, um, which we wouldn't feature. 
Um, and obviously the internet is the, <laughs> it's a great place to find a ton of those as well. Um, so part of the process um, that we use to make sure that it's a good fit for our audience and for the people who like our site is to um, put it through that process of ensuring it's not uh, the gift that supports pseudoscience or anything like that. So what kind of team is uh, working behind Geekrapt? How many people help you pick and curate the products? Yeah, right now it's a team of seven people. Um, and we're distributed uh, all over the world uh, in Canada, the US, and Europe. Primarily, at the end of the day, I make the decisions of uh, putting products on the page or not, but it's a, a wonderful team of uh, volunteers that um, I, I guess we all share the same goal of um, getting people more excited about science, and it's it's a lot of fun to work together. Simon, Geek Wrapped is a veritable nerd paradise. Thanks for coming <laughs> on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Geekwrapped or support some fantastic science charities while also getting nerdtastic products for yourself or someone else who will appreciate them, do check out geekwrapped.com or look for the link in the show notes for this episode on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and iTunes, where you can listen to all our past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Just before we sign off this week... We want to announce our listener feedback survey, which is now live and waiting for your thoughts. You can find it at scienceforthepeople.ca slash feedback. We've made the survey fast and easy to fill out. There are only 10 questions, and most of them are rapid-fire multiple choice. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to answer a few questions about how you listen to the show and what you think about how we're doing. Your feedback is valuable, and we want to hear from as many of you as possible. We want to keep making science for the people something all of you out there in listener land enjoy. So we thought it was about time to have a little check-in. We also wanted to get your feedback on how science for the people should support itself. Whether you're listening to us on your local radio station, on an online stream, or via the podcast app of your choice, the show has always been freely distributed. We don't charge carrier fees to the stations who rebroadcast Science for the People, and we don't plan to. We want the show to be available wherever community radio signals are broadcast, no matter how shoestring the station budget might be. We also want to keep making the podcast available to any and all science lovers who might want to listen to it. But the internet tubes we send our show through are not free, and there is always going to be a minimum cost associated with keeping the show up and running. And lately, those costs are starting to creep up. The Science for the People team is a ragtag group of volunteers, and we're largely funding the show out of our own pockets in order to keep it free for you, the listeners. And while we're not in trouble yet, we're also realizing that funding model probably isn't sustainable. But before we make any changes, we put the question to you, our listeners. How do you want to support the show? We could look for sponsors, and you could support the show with your ears by listening to advertisements and occasionally throwing a bone to one of our sponsors so they'll love our show as much as you do. We could add affiliate links to our website and social media streams, and you could support the show with your clicks by purchasing some of the books you've heard us discussing using those links. We could accept donations and crowdfund the show. Those of you who are able and willing could send us a few dollars over the internet to help offset our costs and keep the show free for those who can't afford to chip in, much as they might want to. So if you out there in listener land have strong feelings about which strategies we use to keep science for the people free to listen to, now is the time to tell us. 
You'll find our survey at scienceforthepeople.ca/feedback, or by visiting the Science for the People website and clicking on the banner you see at the top of the page. And you can always email us anytime at feedback at scienceforthepeople.ca. Send us your thoughts on the most recent show, or pass along your ideas for new shows. You can also leave your thoughts in the comments on individual episodes on our website, or send us a message or comment on the Facebook page. You can also tweet us anytime at Sci for the People, and that four is the number four. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Mm-hmm.